Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We're glad that you're here to hear about Jesus Christ. Last week, we commemorated Christ's triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We discovered that there were people there with a variety of opinions of opinions about Jesus, about his identity. Some of those who are in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, uh, they viewed Jesus as a threat, we found out. And because large crowds had been following Jesus as he miraculously healed every kind of disease and sickness, uh, they observed that his teaching was unlike any other they had ever heard. That's amazing. Unlike any other. Now if we go somewhere today and we go to a church and it's unlike any other thing we've ever heard before, maybe we need to worry and run for the exit, right? But this was the Son of God. He was teaching Things they had not heard. Why? Because the religious sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had eventually discarded Scripture. Jesus brought them back to Scripture. He was always quoting Scripture, while the religious elite were quoting all kinds of fanciful things that had been made up over the centuries. Jesus brought them back to the truth. And even in Jesus' hometown, we are told in the Gospel of Matthew that he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And that happened everywhere that he went. Christ's ability to teach and to preach, it pitted him against the religious leaders of his day. It's because people that that saw Jesus compared his teaching to theirs. It didn't make him look so good. After a sermon on the mount in Matthew 7, we're told, The crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their own scribes. So the people, they loved what they saw and heard with Jesus. So as he rode that that donkey colt into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, the week that was leading up to his crucifixion, the Jewish leaders feared. They feared there might be some sort of religious insurrection. And the very next day, that would be Monday of that week, Jesus' first official act during the Passover was to go and purge the temple. He purged it of the the traitors who'd gathered to profit by the selling of religious merchandise. They were there during the feast of the Passover to make money at the temple. And they had made God's temple into some, some type of religious flea market. But Jesus rebuked them. He said, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. So Jesus had done a a really marvelous thing by standing up against the religious leaders, cleansing the temple and its courtyard. He got rid of the the opportunistic panhandlers who had had moved in. And, And the people rejoiced at this. Because now they're able to come to God's temple for what it had been built and designed for, for prayer, for worship. And I believe it's in a sense of irony that we found it written by by Matthew in his gospel that we 
Observe this response of the religious elite to all of this. It says in Matthew chapter 21, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant. The record of the same event in the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. They could not find anything that they might do, it says, for all the people were hanging on every word that Jesus said. What Jesus was doing was good. They were wonderful. Reforming the temple, it was the right thing to do. Why didn't other religious leaders that were there just join in on them? Yeah, it needs reforming. What's broken? Let's fix it. Why didn't they join in? Pastor Weiler shared last week why they didn't join in. He's very subtle and coy. They were children of the devil. They stood against Christ. They stood against God. They had indoctrinated this faulty view of God. Some of them, uh, priests that were of a sect called the Sadducees, didn't even believe in a resurrection after death. It's a very big problem, as we can see from 1 Corinthians 15 that we read early during the Scripture reading. If you don't believe in the physical death and the physical resurrection of Christ, and eventually that of yourself, Your faith is futile. You believed in vain. The only way we're going to escape that is if Christ has returned before we die. But every one of us is going to die, and every one of us is going to be raised, and we're going to stand before God. Why is this so important? The resurrection, believing in Christ's resurrection, why is it so essential? You know, it's not essential so that our kids can go to the park and and have a wonderful Easter egg hunt. As fun as that is, we went there yesterday. Got to share a bunch of tracks with folks and invitations to church. That's fun stuff. But that's not what the resurrection is about. The resurrection of a completely dead body, it's miraculous. It is outside of science. It is unexplainable. That first Sunday following his crucifixion, Christ's body, and that of many Old Testament believers rose out of the grave. In Matthew 27, verse 50, as Christ is dying on the cross, it tells us that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top till bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split, and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that is, died, were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Many after the resurrection. So Jesus, he wasn't alone. One reason you and I must believe literally in in the bodily resurrection of Christ, it's not that it's only scientifically unexplainable, it's scientifically impossible. It's impossible. Christians must be willing to accept the impossible. We accept it by faith. And once you and I get beyond this miracle, 
the miracle of the resurrection, once we can accept that, that, that God changed things, that He rose Jesus from the dead, this changes things. At that point, every other Bible in the miracle in the Bible becomes acceptable. We discover they're no longer just these Bible stories that we learned when we were little kids. They're historical facts. And if Christ's resurrection is factual, we can know that Christ's walking on water is factual. We can know that Noah's building of the ark is factual. And it suddenly becomes easy for us to understand why at mountaintops they find fossils of fish. Because at one point, the whole earth was covered with water in a great flood. It's factual. In fact, I remember when God was first drawing me to faith myself, I was listening to a a Bible scholar by the name of Woodrow Kroll who was on the radio. And he had this radio program, Back to the Bible. And he was teaching about how God had used Moses to part the Red Sea so that the Israelites could pass through to safety as they were departing from Egypt. And God used him, Moses, to part the Red Sea. And God granted me that faith, that ability to see. This is real. This is real. It's factual. If God can raise his son from the dead, God can do anything. Right? He's not restrained by time or matter or space or the laws of physics. Because God created time and matter and space and the laws of physics. Amen? It's factual. And when I was listening to that show, and a radio show, and I had learned this, I said, you know what? This changes things. This changes things. But many, many in Jerusalem, like the Sadducees, they didn't believe in any resurrection. Like the chief priests and the Pharisees who wanted to defend their religious turf, they didn't receive Jesus, they did not accept his words, they didn't believe that his miracles were from God. Contrast this to the attitudes of the crowds that welcomed him. Most of them really liked Jesus. In fact, they liked him so much, they started putting their coats on the road, and they started gathering palm leaves and laying them on the road as Jesus came into town. This is in fulfillment of a prophecy by the prophet Zechariah. And, and in Luke 19, we're told that they threw their coats on the colt and placed Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, for all the miracles which they had seen. They were shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Did you catch that? Luke clarifies the reason that the crowds were shouting joyfully. They praised God for the miracles that they had seen. This is in complete harmony with the account of the triumphal entry as it is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where it says, The people who were with Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason, Luke writes, also the people, that's meaning the crowds, for this reason the crowds went and met him, 
because they had heard that Jesus had performed this sign. You know, crowds today are still searching for a sign. Everybody wants a miracle. Everybody seeks a sign. And they demand something from God to be shown in order to believe. You know, across America, hordes of people flock to churches hoping to see some kind of miracle that Sunday. Something spectacular that will help them keep on believing. They're a lot different than a character that we know of named Doubting Thomas. You remember him? He was an apostle. And after Christ's resurrection, he said to himself, Unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. That's how people behave today. And, and then re- the resurrected Christ did come to Thomas. We find this in John chapter 20. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, right here. Right here. And you know what Thomas did? The scripture says that he dropped to his knees and he said, My Lord and my God. Jesus replied to him, You believe because of what you have seen? Blessed are they who believe yet have not seen. Extra blessed are the ones who've not seen anything miraculous because it's by faith. And I don't need to come to church for some kind of hyped up, man-made, concocted sign or miracle. I don't know what you see, but my Bible, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says we walk by faith, not by sight. The kind of faith that saves doesn't require signs all the time. Besides, Jesus said, it is what kind of generation that seeks after a sign? A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That's the age we live in today. And I hear people all the time, you know, they say, you know, I'm really looking, I want to find a church that can provide me with some kind of sign. If you think you have to see something, you've completely misunderstood what it means trusting in Christ and walking by faith. You don't have to see to believe. The crowds welcoming Jesus as he is entering into Jerusalem, they're, they're hoping for a sign. The miracles that he had been doing, they had heard that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They wanted to see something. And, and we're going to find out in a moment just how far that kind of faith carries you when the persecution starts to come. Were there some genuinely loyal believers in Christ at that scene? I, I believe they were. There were the disciples that had been with them, probably a number of the believing women, Lazarus might have been even walking with him into Jerusalem. But the masses came, the crowds came, because they believed this new king, he could provide them some kind of miracle. Provide them a miracle. Grant them on demand. They welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem for a selfish motive. He could heal their sicknesses, he could cure all of their maladies, their blindness, leprosy, you name it. And we know from the Scriptures, Jesus surely could do those things. 
But healing everybody is not why he came. Mark chapter 1, we observe Jesus healing multitudes. And they kept on coming. And, And early one morning, Jesus had slipped away to pray be by himself, and the Apostle Peter comes seeking him out. And, and Peter tells him, everybody is looking for you. Well, of course they were. He had been healing everybody the night before. The masses were coming looking for him so they could get something. They wanted to be healed. But what was Jesus' reply? Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, Jesus said, so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. Jesus came for preaching the kingdom. He didn't come to heal everybody. He didn't heal everybody. It's absolutely astonishing how crowds will flock to Jesus to have their situation fixed. But they don't generally want to hear preaching or or in any way acknowledge their sins. They don't want to repent or turn from sin. They don't want to turn to Christ. They prefer that Jesus would just improve their situation. Can you get me out of debt? Can you you increase my 401k? I could use a job promotion, Jesus. I'd like to have my home, my car paid off, Jesus. Jesus didn't come to do any of that. There are a number of reasons that Jesus came Scripture says that he came to testify to the truth. He came for the judgment of the ungodly, John 9, 39. He offered himself as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, I came to do my Father's will, John 6, 38. I came to call sinners to repentance, Mark 2, 17. And the Apostle Paul provides this summary statement in 1 Timothy 1.15, as the main reason that Christ came. Right here, you ready? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? There it is. He came to save sinners. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Referring to his fast approaching crucifixion, Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 26, For this very hour I came. The crucifixion. Jesus never indicates that he came to make life easy, to make everyone who follows him wealthy, healthy, wise. Take a look around. Take a stroll through church history. Actually, the last 2,000 years, the apostles, the martyrs, those who were stoned, forced out of their homes, burned at the stake, beheaded. This is traditionally what has happened to Christians throughout the ages. And Jesus said, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Then Paul assured a young pastor named Timothy in Ephesus, he said, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is what Jesus promised. And it's what's been experienced by Christ's followers throughout history, over 20 centuries. 
Christians haven't. Bible-believing Christians have not broadly experienced health and wealth and prosperity. The crowd's view of the Messiah when he came in and rode on that donkey, it was warped. And they thought that Jesus was going to establish his throne and his power, and they were each anticipating that they were going to be on the in crowd. They were going to get what they were needed. They are going to be in the inside track. And they were wanting miracles. Most weren't seeking a solution to their sins. But later that week, Jesus was arrested. Happened in the middle of the night by a, by a mob. He was then taken and he was tried in a kangaroo court and beaten and spat upon and scourged and crucified publicly. Everybody got to see it. It was public. He was crucified. You know what most of the crowd said at this point? This changes things. This isn't the Messiah that we were looking for. And after three years of Jesus doing ministry, he healed multitudes, he preached to tens of thousands of people, probably more. And and, and after his crucifixion, those who are called the brethren in the beginning of the books of Acts, the book of Acts says, consisted of about 120 About 120. And I anticipate there were some others too that were left in Samaria where he had traveled and where they had seen him. But in Jerusalem, only about 120. Out of what historians conservatively conservatively suggest during this feast, two million. Now that's a narrow road. 120 out of two million. But, But some people... You know, they go on for a very long time in their lives trying to figure out who Jesus is, why He came. You know, if if that describes you today, you're not alone. You're not alone in that, trying to figure out Jesus. The same was true for His disciples. The twelve apostles, you know, they had believed some things about Christ, but not everything about Christ. They, They had an incomplete picture of who He was. And and as Jesus was gathering the disciples to himself, he divulges then the differing opinions about him in Matthew chapter 16. Where Jesus, it is said that Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and, and he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's referring to himself. And they replied, some say John the Baptist Others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. See, the crowds didn't really understand. They didn't really know who he was. He didn't have a full picture. And Jesus said to his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus essentially replies, that profession is correct, Peter. I am the Christ. And he says, and upon this rock I will build my church. Christ's church is established on the rock-solid truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
Yet Peter still had an incomplete picture. He still didn't get it. Continuing in that very same passage, verse 20, Then Jesus warned the disciples that they should not go tell anyone that he was the Christ. But from that time forward, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Ooh. That didn't fit into Peter's version of the Christ. He wasn't looking forward to that. And in verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on the interests of man. Peter still wasn't there. Peter had man's interests in mind. He preferred no suffering, no persecution, no crucifixion. He didn't want any of that. He'd already professed that Jesus is the Messiah. He didn't quite understand the Messiah. But Jesus immediately turns to the other disciples and says this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. God, deny yourself, Peter. So when Peter made his first profession of Christ, he didn't get the full picture. He didn't get the death, crucifixion, suffering thingy. You know? Peter's idea of Christ was standing in the way to the cross and to everybody's salvation. He would have preferred to stop it. As such, Jesus even refers to Peter's motives as being satanic. Jesus indicating that Peter's selfish motives were a stumbling block standing in the way to the Via Dolorosa. His path to the cross, the Via Dolorosa, if you've heard that song, Sandy Patty, it means the way of suffering. And this wasn't the last time that Peter attempts to stand in Christ's Via Dolorosa. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed and in an attempt to thwart Christ's arrest, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Melchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given to me, Peter, shall I not drink it? Then he says, All who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. You know, I have a small observation about Peter in the Gospels as you read through all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Throughout his ministry, you know, Peter mostly remains very fixated on the relationship between himself and Jesus. I was able to find no reference of Peter uh, in the Gospels prior to the crucifixion ever speaking to outsiders. Now, I'm not saying that Peter never did speak to outsiders. All I'm saying is that Scripture, the, the Holy Scriptures, they make no point about it. They make no emphasis that, that Peter was speaking to crowds. It's not recorded. In fact, most often the disciples, including Peter, were trying to prevent the crowds, the young children, the old women, and, and the blind beggars. Scram. Trying to prevent them from reaching Jesus when they're in crowds. 
And, and instead of speaking to the crowds, Peter is usually observed speaking to Jesus. Lord, command me that I may come out on the water also. On the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, if you wish, I'll, I'll build three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter said, Rabbi, look at the fig tree which you have cursed. It has withered. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Those are the words of Peter. Lord, we have left everything to follow you. And finally, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will not deny you. Peter loved Jesus. Peter didn't display a whole lot of interest towards others. In fact, I was unable to locate a single reference where Peter actually spoke to anyone outside of the circle of the disciples before that fateful night. Peter did not follow after Jesus, um, or he followed after Jesus later on after this arrest. He did follow him. Peter loved him. He was committed to Christ. And he followed down into this courtyard of this high priest that we know is named Caiaphas. And this is where Luke 22 tells us, for about already an hour now, Jesus has been uh, falsely accused, tried, spat upon, beaten with fists. And Peter's sitting out in the outer courtyard able to see all of this in the middle of the night. And this is where we finally see Peter interacting with outsiders. Are you ready? Three people recognized him. And they said, they insisted Peter had been with Jesus. You two are a Galilean. And Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. I do not know that man. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the scripture says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The gospel says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. We don't see Peter again come on the scene at all until that Resurrection Sunday, that first Easter morning. In the meantime, God's perfect sinless son, he's scourged, he is tortured for hours. He is nailed upon a cross and, and hung for everyone to see naked. He's humiliated. His body is crucified to death while hanging on the cross. And he hung there suffering for our sins. And God dispensed the full weight of his wrath that was supposed to be destined for us. And he poured it out on his beloved son. Jesus took it. He drank the cup. He drank it fully. And God's son lived that perfect sinless life that we haven't. Yet he gave himself up to die a penalty that we deserve. Scripture says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
God sent His Son to be born of a virgin girl, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the purpose He came. Philippians 2.8 Being found in the appearance of a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why He came. And His lifeless body was laid in the tomb. On the third day He rose again. He was seen by hundreds of people. Hundreds. 500 at one time, we're told, in one location. He died for the sins of all who will believe. The grave could not hold Him. We sing the song, Up from the Ground He Rose. Victory. And you know, Peter had thought previously it was over. He, did. he thought it was done. He thought the mission had failed. He didn't realize that the mission had just begun. And on that first Sunday, the women, we learned earlier, called the men to the tomb, called Peter to the tomb. And John 20, verse 6 tells us, And so Simon Peter came and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen, wrapping, the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but it was rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also went in with Peter, and he saw and he believed. For as yet it says, they had not understood the Scripture, up to that point, that he must rise again from the dead. They still had not, until that point, understood the Scripture. The Gospel of Luke says that, you know, Peter, he, he went on his way home, we're told, he was marveling, at what had happened, he was rejoicing in what he had found in an empty tomb. And you know what I think Peter said to himself? Well, this changes things. This changes things. And Peter finally got it. The Holy Spirit empowered that, the church on that first day of Pentecost that was 50 days later. And Peter stood up, and now he preached to the crowds. Now he takes the message forth about Christ. And he said that God had crucified his son according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. They were pierced to the heart, the scripture says. They knew that they were responsible for driving the nails. Just as you and I were responsible for driving the nails and scourging his back. We're all responsible. And the crowds that Peter spoke to on that day were convicted to their, of their sins. And they said to Peter... And the rest of the apostles said, Brethren, what shall we do? Very clear, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's us today. Good news. As many as the Lord God will call to Himself, it says. And the Scripture says, with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Is that a message for today? Yeah. So then, 
Those who had received his word were baptized, and on that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Peter's first day of preaching. It's pretty good. Be saved. Have you done that? Have you understood that, like Peter, that, that Jesus had to suffer and die for your sins? Do your sins bother you at all? They should. We have a holy God. Do they grieve you? Do you lament? Are you, as the Scripture said, pierced to the heart? The Apostle Peter says, Be saved from this perverse generation. We find this word repentance. You might wonder what that word means. It gets tossed around a lot, repent. Um, in, in Acts chapter 8, Peter told a man named Simon the sorcerer, not such a good guy. He wanted to pay to get control of the Holy Spirit. Wanted to buy it. But nonetheless, Peter told him, Peter told him repent of this wickedness of yours. Turn from it. And in Revelation chapter 2, to the church we know of as Thyatira, John the Apostle writes about a woman named Jezebel who did not want to repent of her immorality. Didn't want to turn from it. So repent in one sense means to turn away from sin. But it's not the full meaning. Repent also means to turn to God. To turn to Christ. The Greek word essentially means to change one's mind. You change your mind about sin, you turn away from it. You change your mind about Jesus Christ, you turn to Him. It's like two, two sides of the same coin. Repentance. And, and, and Scripture tells us that there's no forgiveness of sins apart from repentance. From this change of heart, this change of mind. You must know what your sin is. You must know that Christ had to die for it. There has to be a turning. And, and this whole idea that you can believe in Jesus that's passed around today, and then just keep on living your life however you want to, that is a lie. A faith in Jesus that doesn't involve some kind of turning is a lie. To be saved, you must believe the truth about Christ. And as you place your trust in Him, Scripture tells us you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will provide you with an increasing distaste for your sin. You won't have to go through this walk in Christ alone. You, he, the Holy Spirit is with you. Don't want you to misunderstand what we're talking about here. You don't have to completely clean up your life before you become a Christian. Don't anticipate. You know, a lot of people say, well, I've got to go home and get my closet in order. And I've got to get everything perfect before I can be a Christian, because they're perfect people. <laughs> no. We're imperfect people. Yet, you need to make a decision about Christ and resist sin. That is empowerment by the Holy Spirit. God will help you clean it up along the way. You're not going to be perfect day one, but you need to decide who Christ is. God will even adjust your circumstances. You say, I'm in a bind. I don't know how I would ever get out of this. I know God is not pleased with this. Accept Christ. Accept the gift of salvation. And He will find you a path out of your issues. He might not make life real easy right off the bat. You might have to suffer. Many have had to die. It's no big deal. We come back again. It's good, good news. 
but we do need to be saved from our sins. That's what today is about. And, and you can be certain that, that you, when you trust Christ, that He died for your sins, He rose from the grave, you display that evidence of that. You're like, you know what? It's working. I don't really like what I am. I'm, I'm turning from that. God is working in my life. My circumstances are changing. When you have repented of your sins, you've had that changed heart, you need to be baptized. You need to be water baptized. And that is declaring to the whole world what Christ has done for you and how you have a changed life because of Him. Because when Christ enters your life, folks, it changes things. Changes things.